0: And welcome back to another episode of the Roots to STEM podcast, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Cady. In today's episode, we're hearing from Dr. Jorge Ramos, the Associate Director for Environmental Education at the Jasper Ridge Biological Preserve of Stanford University. Jorge earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Texas at El Paso and his master's at the University of Washington. He then completed his Ph.D. at Arizona State University, where he studied biogeochemical cycling and wetland ecosystems. After his Ph.D., Jorge worked in the nonprofit space for Conservation International, where he developed and managed coastal ecosystem conservation projects around the world. In this episode, we talk about how it's easy to feel like there's a certain path you should, and I'm putting big air quotes around should, follow in academia, but that you absolutely do not need to follow the path that everyone else is taking. And then in fact, some of your proudest moments can come from finally making decisions based just on what you want, and not on what you think others have as their expectations of you. I really loved getting to sit down and talk with Jorge, so I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: So can we just start off with who are you, what your job is, and what your job entails?
2: Uh, Yes, Uh, my name is Jorge Ramos. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. My job, my formal title, is Associate Director for Environmental Education at Jasper Ridge Biological Preserve, which is the biological preserve that Stanford University has uh, just like five miles south of campus. And um, my job entails uh, a couple things. So I co-teach a course, the Bio-Earth Systems 105, uh, with Rolo and, um that one is the ecology and natural history of Jasper Ridge. And then the other sort of three fourths of the job is uh pretty much managing and directing all the outreach and education
3: programs here at the preserve. Yes. Cool.
1: Great. So can you do sort of a brief rundown of your like uh academic history? Oh my starting God. with college. And I think sort of focusing on like when you were making decisions to move on to the next thing, like your master's program or PhD, sort of how did you decide if that was the right thing for you?
2: Yeah, so so I actually, sorry, I started college at University of Texas at El Paso, which is UTEP. Go minors, <laughs> <laughs> We always say it, uh, and uh, that was the college that was actually just um, across my, from my hometown in Ciudad Juarez. Uh, so it was the easiest university to get to uh, from my house and there
3: was also the uh, the one that could accept me with a a high school diploma from Mexico uh, and uh, like just three months
2: before admissions (laughs) I don't know why we were so late into that game (laughs) so and uh, and I think I I wanted to be like in the sciences outdoors that's what I remember Mm -hmm. Uh, and there was no ecology major, there was no, I think environmental science major when I started it, and it was um geology had the most field trips. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Department of Geology was known for its field yeah. trips, especially in the Southwest still that. There's like volcanoes and salt flats and like playas and um and I think that's when I chose um that the geology department had an environmental science focus. Uh, and it was also the only place where like, there was a Latino professor uh, mm-hmm. who ended up being my mentor and still is Aaron Velasco. Um, and
3: uh, that's when I started just exploring that major of environmental science. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did a lot of use, the
2: research experience for undergrads. Uh, and they were the programs that exposed me to research. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, where and- did you do those?
2: So I did those, like, uh, the first one was UT Austin.
3: Okay, cool.
2: Yeah, so which was uh, like eight hours away. It was the first time I like left home for a while. And we uh, were still in the state, even though it's like eight hours away. <laughs> Texas, like, East Coast people always make fun of us. Uh, and then, and that introduced me to like first like doing my own independent project, uh, getting to work with another team of mentors, and doing field work, a mm-hmm. lot of field work, uh, in a river restoration project. And it was kind of cool to just sort of have that ability to like get paid to do research. Yeah. I had no idea that was a thing. Like they paid you to live also, like, like housing and meals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it was a cohort, so we would always work together
3: and progress together. Um, uh, it was good. And
2: then I actually got to present that work, uh, at the ecological side of america thanks to a seeds uh the seeds program uh scholarship and and so that one was like the first time that i went to a conference and people then i met people that had like phd's that were going to conferences and like doing ecology work and it was all outdoors and i was like oh this is like super cool uh i did another one which was technically not an RU. it was a it was a job with the fish and wildlife service they had hi- they were hiring um uh, technicians to do amphibian surveys mm-hmm. in Alaska yeah
1: cool <laughs> so we,
2: there's we needed to catch we were surveying for deformed um uh, amphibians mm-hmm. in Alaska, and the Fish and Wildlife Service was doing a survey on all the ponds that um uh, were near oil and gas fields okay. uh, so it was really interesting uh So it was a lot of um, working 24 hours, literally, because in the summer, when the boss says, like, oh, let's just go to sleep when the sun sets. It's like, (laughs) oh, it's summer in Alaska. (laughs) It never sets. But that was my experience also, like, in the wild, uh, always carrying a shotgun for bear protection. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, we were backpacking, camping, carrying canoes. uh, So it was, like, three months just, yeah. So it wasn't my own research project, but I got to experience like what a researcher needs to like
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh complete a project uh, in a federal agency. So it's really cool. Um and then that's when people were like, Oh, you've done so much research, why right? didn't you go to grad school? And I'm like, but like no one in my family has ever gone to grad school. Mm-hmm. So it was like this like isn't this the point where you get a job?
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and they're like, no, but like if you go to grad school you can get a better job later. I'm like, oh And I was like, okay and I had not met a lot of grad students. Um so The seeds. uh, When I told you about the seeds project, they, we actually all three of Andrea, Cristina, myself, and uh, was it just three of us? I think that night we decided it's like, okay, let's go to grad school. Like everyone keeps telling us about it, let's apply. And then we all like pushed each other to like complete applications. And uh, and I remember we were on speakerphone before iPhones. It was like this flip phones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We called them iFlips (laughs) to stay cool. Uh, And. I remember the three of us were like, okay, let's just hit submit. And we hit submit and we all got into our programs. We all um, did grad school. Um, and I went to the University of Washington in Seattle mm-hmm. uh, to continue pursuing amphibian research more from a like a landscape scale study. Um, and that, I was still under that like path of like, oh, I should just do whatever I did as an undergrad, mm-hmm. right? Like it's always. Oh, Continuity and like, um, and it was also the first time I moved far away from my family to live in a very different city. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my advisor was also like his first time uh, ever advising. Uh, So it was kind of a, it was a learning lesson of like, okay, yeah, grad school is very independent. Uh, My advisor was very Mm -hmm. hands-off. He's also a modeler, not a field person. Okay. So it was very different and challenging to like sort of see, okay, what's really the point of grad school? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, is it like to do science just to do science? Like, am I just supposed to follow like what everyone's doing? Or do I really wanna do this or not? Like it was, um, and that's when I started feeling like, okay, well, maybe I do need to do science because I really like science. I've always been like a curious person outdoors. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't feeling like that was going to be a really research, like, positive experience. If I was just doing science or research in that lab, I was not going to enjoy it that much. Because I I didn't have that sense of community there. Okay. In El Paso, when I was an undergrad, I was, like, still living with my sister. El Paso is, like, 80% Latinos. Mm -hmm. So Seattle was not, like, University of Washington was not 80% Latino. It was really (laughs) far from home. And I didn't have that sense of community. Um... But I did find a group, uh, SACNAS is called, and they it was a good group of friends that made that community. Mm-hmm. Um and it was then I think what happened, uh I still was like, I oh yeah, I applied for the NSF to RFP mm-hmm. because that's what I think in the program they're like, everyone should apply for this. Uh and I ended up getting it, and it was on my second year of my master's, which I don't know if you can do that anymore. Maybe
3: I don't know; they changed the rules. Yeah, all the time. yeah. So
2: if you're a student listening to this, check <laughs> check the guidelines for the NSF Um uh, And I got it, and that's when like my advisor helped me write it. He's like, "Oh my god, do you got? This like you can stay here, uh, or you can take it anywhere, like wherever you want." And that's when I was like, "Oh, it's like," and I had. And I still loved like amphibians live in wetland ecosystems, and I still love wetland ecosystems. There's something about them that is very fascinating to me. And my then I knew other PhD uh, other labs at Arizona State that were doing a lot of like uh, wetland work, but more from a biogeochemistry perspective, mm-hmm. nutrient cycling, carbon cycling. And I contacted them, and I was like, "Oh, would you be interested if I applied?" Um, like, "Oh, well, yeah, we do some of that work." And uh, you should uh, apply. Um, so I applied there, and that's when I got my I got into the PhD program at Arizona State, and I got to do really cool work on carbon cycling in wetland ecosystems. And that actually it balanced out my whole experience of like still doing research on the habitat that I really liked mm-hmm. from a new perspective, which was a biogeochemistry perspective. Uh, and Arizona State had like I think all of my committee members were all Spanish speakers, or they were like at least bilingual in some way um arizona is very latino friendly uh it was well back then it was not very latino friendly uh, there was mm. big policies uh
3: yeah
2: uh very racist policies but now they're they're turning i think uh and uh yeah so that was a really yeah long-winded pathway to get to uh my phd uh but then i had a really positive experience in my phd i had Really good colleagues, good mentors, uh, good advisors. They're very different. Mentors and advisors yeah. are different. So <laughs> uh and uh yeah, I still um good friends with many of them. Um uh, and then yeah, and then the job happens. I don't know if you want me to talk yeah. about the job. Oh the yeah, job's yeah, too yeah. oh. <laughs> well then after the job, let's see. Well, during my PhD, that's what got me uh introduced to since so I was working on wetlands and carbon cycling and nitrogen cycling, uh, it got me into the topic of uh, climate change and pretty much how wetlands play a role in climate change, uh, especially in the field of carbon sequestration and mm-hmm. carbon storage. Uh, and that's because uh, the properties of the soil in wetland ecosystems, they actually slow decomposition. So they actually sequester uh, more carbon. Mm-hmm. than your regular forest uh, soils and that applies into uh, freshwater wetlands but also coastal wetlands mm-hmm. and the so as i was working in my phd i actually started working a lot um one of the things i did in my phd that i think i'm very lucky that i was able to do was actually have the ability to do research ASU had a lot of funding opportunities for researchers even as a grad student uh they had a long term ecological research station mm-hmm. there. So there's a lot of funding for grad students there. But it also builds uh ASU lets you build a really strong community with your cohort, with your mentors. If you're like doing biogeochemistry at ASU, you have like three floors in one building. That's the soils lab, the nitrogen lab, the lake like the lunology lab, the aquatic lab, the soil I mean, it's all uh the carbon lab. So it's very easy to build a good community of science, uh and also peers and Uh, And I was doing a lot of uh, outreach also. I Mm -hmm. did a lot of outreach at Arizona State uh, through the SOCNAS program, through SEEDS. uh, And also just to, I actually got a fellowship that, I don't know if it exists anymore, the NSF GK-12 fellowship. I
3: don't think
2: so. Where they they paired, um, you get it through, so there's only one host institution. So the host institution has a GK-12 fellowship program and then BC students apply and you get paired with a high school. Hmm. Um, and for a whole year, you get to develop a curriculum with a teacher and you both get funds to do this. And then you get to implement activities uh, for the teacher. So it was really good. I got to work with two schools and we built a sustainability course. We built sustainability activities. Uh, and it was working with the community also. And uh, then I actually they ended up hiring me one more year uh, to follow up with the teacher. So that also mm-hmm. got me a lot of education and outreach experience, mm-hmm. how to build curriculum, uh, how do you present your science to broader audiences, uh, and how do you engage the community around uh, the high schools.
1: Did you get any formal training in that or just sort of learning with that teacher or
2: yeah, no, they gave us. Uh, actually, I carry my books. My the the first education science books I got through that fellowship, okay. and they're in my little library right. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like it's called Understanding by Design. I remember the name. Uh, and uh, they taught us how to do curriculum through the backward design uh, method. And uh, so it was really useful to do that. We we were trained how to do videos also that mm. teach uh, a concept, a five minute video. I did mine on dams and look where I'm at. <laughs> So it's, uh, yeah, so it was really useful and the teachers appreciated that we were also not just like going to be shadowing them. Right. Like we were actually going to bring experience in science, but also we knew what the importance of curriculum was. Uh, So that actually, uh, it gave me both strengths of like doing my research, but also doing outreach with like that almost formal training, right? Yeah.
1: Because I think a lot of outreach programs that exist are just sort of. Here's a teacher. Here's a classroom to work with. But you don't necessarily have the training to do that. And yeah. so it's not often, like, sometimes it's not super useful on either side.
2: Yeah. Or not uh,
1: as useful as it could be, I guess.
2: And that's actually, I yeah, that's a very, we're going to talk more about that, too. But that actually can be a bit of a problem um, that's derived from our current system. Where, like, in institutions like an R1 institution, they might not value outreach. As much, so then grad students... Or teaching. Or teaching, right? Yeah. Yeah. Teaching and outreach, education on that part, which is kind of ironic because we're an educational institution. Yeah. So what happens then, if the outreach and the teaching is not uh, valued, then there's no resources put in it. So then the people that are looking for that training, they have to look for it outside.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And when you get this training outside, you might just do it volunteering, you might just do it on the side, you might just do it even hiding from your advisor. And then the problem then gets like a snowball effect that then you and your CV are even unsure how to put it mm-hmm. and you're even unsure how to word it and how do you even give value to what you did so much. So that's something I'm working on with another team on like what are all the hidden benefits of outreach that are actually, we're missing out on recognizing on the mm-hmm. students. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so then that actually, what happened was, now that I have that experience with community and education and science, um, I actually started going to conferences and I started paying attention to people that were not um, in universities, but that had PhDs and were doing community conservation work.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it was interesting for me to like see, well, how are they? Why do they get a PhD? Like, how are they PhDs but doing community conservation mm-hmm. work? Because that sounded to me like. Oh, they're just like doing community work and presenting science. But like, what is that job? Like, um, and so I met one, my former boss, I met her at a conference in China, actually. And I went to her talk and I was like, Oh, that's super cool that she's doing like, um, conservation of carbon in coastal ecosystems, uh, through community work. Mm -hmm. And so then I was there also presenting my work on carbon. Cycling in wetland ecosystems, but I was in freshwater systems, and they function pretty much similarly. Uh, Just the salt in the coastal waters like actually prevents uh, more greenhouse gas emissions. Freshwater wetlands do emit a bit more. Hmm. But um, so then she went to my talk too, and then I remember the last year of my PhD, I was um, I was already that like, oh, I need to like look for the postdoc, right? Because that's what like. We're always told, like, if we're only mentored by academics in universities, then we only see jobs of PhDs in academia yeah. and professors, right? So, yeah. and I remember I got that, um I I got an email from her and it's like, hey, you said you were going to finish your PhD soon. Uh, we're actually looking to expand our carbon project. And if you're interested, you should apply for this job. And I remember I went to my advisor and I was like, hey, I got this like email from a nonprofit uh and she was like i don't know anything about that i cannot help you so go look for another mentor <laughs> and i'm like oh okay <laughs> uh so uh that was like one of the but then i was already talking to someone else about a traditional postdoc right like, mm-hmm. how do i continue my work of carbon cycling in wetlands and it was going to be i was exploring this idea of it was going to be this project in in the amazon forest you know like in the middle of nowhere um still probably was not going to look like a job, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I remember like after my undergrad, I was already looking for a job and now it's like about seven, eight years later. And I'm like, what, what is it? <laughs> so, but then, and then I, when I was defending, um uh, I was actually applying for jobs while you're defending. That's normal.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and I remember I got the, I applied for the conservation um uh, international job. And I got it, and I was like, oh, I went to my advisor. It's like, oh, I got this job. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Congrats. So, like, that was a week before my defense. And I remember he started my defense and I was like, well, we don't have to worry about Cork anymore because he got a job. So, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's cool. But it really, it was a really cool, uh, like, experience to apply for that job because it was a cover letter and, like, one resume. It was like a one-pager. And I was like, oh, my God. And I could even trying to, like. I know. The longer your CV, the better. It's like, yeah. that's just bogus. That's like, no one cares to read about like your 48 pages of like every single poster talk. The tiny uh, award that you got. Yeah, that's exactly. Better. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I remember I went to the career center at Arizona State and I was like, the day you, the job deadline was due, and I was like, can you help me condense this like 14 page CV <laughs> that, uh, into a one pager and help me write a cover letter? I had never written like a Job let I think it's called cover letters, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I think I even bought them lunch. I <laughs> went like across the street. There was like a Chipotle or something like that. <laughs> and the whole day we just worked on it, and then I submitted that day, and that's when I applied. Um, yeah, so that got me into that job in CI Conservation International, and I did that for about two, uh, two and a half years, almost three years, where I was uh, doing community conservation work of. Uh, carbon-rich coastal ecosystems. So all of my training in science and carbon was really useful to sort of bring in the science to the communities, to translate the science to the communities um, and understand, like, the latest science on carbon cycling was. And then all my education and outreach training helped me actually how do you communicate with broader Mm -hmm. audiences? Uh, You know, how do you um, even approach people from different backgrounds? Um, How do you, you know, Engage with people respectfully and ethically Mm -hmm. when talking about, uh, conservation. Um, and like also having hard conversations of like, Oh, well, you know, maybe some communities, we would get questions of like, well, you're trying to protect this land for carbon and you're asking me to protect it because I will see the benefits of carbon sequestration, maybe in 30, in 50 years.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, but like my community needs to eat next week. So it's like, we need to use this land
3: yeah
1: where were you doing this work
2: uh well that was we had i went to let's see in south america i got to go to projects in panama uh ecuador and um yeah those were the two big ones oh in costa rica those three and then um then I did a couple, uh, ran a couple of projects in Fiji, uh, and a big conference in China, also on the projects. Hmm. So, um,
1: did you notice any differences in terms of how receptive people were to you in? South America where you're a native language speaker versus like in fiji
3: Yeah, stuff. oh yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, So I mean all of them and also Europe. Uh we had a big uh in Ibiza. Uh that was my like my first task when I got the job I was like you have to go to Ibiza and have uh, a conference you're and like, then oh, and no. then go scuba diving in the Mediterranean <laughs> and I was like, what job
3: did I get? Uh, so it is a really good job. Uh yeah, so it's it's very interesting, like um the, the, so the world of non-profits internationally, it's
2: extremely political, hmm. which I had no idea. I thought it was all going to be like, like, oh yeah, it's like all oh, hold hands and protect the <laughs> land, or, and because we are one world, we're going to love each other. It's like no, <laughs> you know, I'm a kid from Ciudad Juarez. where the farthest away from any ocean or any coastal carbon uh, wetland, uh, and I had not traveled that much internationally before, so. Uh, so I think my first trip it's interesting in Latin America going in as a very white Mexican also it's very different than in like Mexican Spanish when you go mm. down to South America like you I mean, everyone knows what a <laughs> a Mexican sounds like in Latin america uh so um so it was really fun to work in these other countries in Latin America and South America and central america um uh, and Yes, the language does uh, help you connect really fast mm-hmm. in Latin America. Uh interestingly, like I was seen as Mexican, uh, but I was working with a US uh mm. global NGO. Yeah. So it is not they're like, oh yeah, you're Mexican, but still you still work <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was interesting because like the projects in these other countries they're all local, so the organization does support the local work and they support like the leaders in the in their own projects mm-hmm. that are they always thrive that they're local leaders in the projects and in their offices, but we're still seen as the headquarters are in d c so uh so i was I was part of the headquarters in d c mm-hmm. even though I was mexican i was yeah, still yeah. so it was a very interesting um and there's also very different cultural values like also like there's very different ways. Latin America can treat people, mm-hmm. uh, and we, yeah. So there's colorism, there's machismo, there's so there's a lot. You know, uh, the LGBTQ community is not well accepted in, in its entirety in all of Latin America, the same way that it's in the US. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's different things in Latin America, and then in Asia, it was interesting. I think I remember hearing someone say it's like, oh well, back when I had to go to, I think was it China or Fiji? Both, both had at some point. Uh, in China there was something going on with the US and Australia that year that I had to go to so like it was almost better to send the Mexican (laughs) to China to be like uh, (laughs) and also I was the lowest in the team so they're like oh you can spend more time in China than all of us (laughs) so it was very interesting uh, and yeah in China was actually interesting too I was there for a while in one summer and I did find out that Latin America and at least the community I was in, in China, it's very family oriented. It's very community oriented and it's very traditional, like oriented too. So, uh, so we could connect in that way too. And it was not like, I'm just like trying to find connections with people. It's like, you just started expressing like common things you do with your family or similarities. And you like, you start to find those connections and that starts to reflect your values it starts to reflect your principles and how you treat people right and how you respect people and i remember they took me to a celebration i think it's in august i don't remember the day but it was one of their celebrations where they celebrate uh, their family members that had passed away and then we started talking about day of the dead in mexico and i was like oh you also do this similarly they do it in front of their homes um and we in Mexico you go to the cemeteries to celebrate Day of the Dead. So but there's still these similarities. You respect your elders that have passed uh, uh passed away. So it was very uh interesting. And then in Fiji was also very very also community oriented and also very sharing food also. Mm. Um and like welcoming into their house and it's it was a very uh, and also more like calm and relaxed and like a big sense of humor too. Mm. Um and so it was a very there's very obviously anywhere you go right even even here in california right you just drive 50 miles away and everything's different so across the world everyone's going to be different but i think it's when you start to make those connections you you start to first observe and listen and that's what one of my things that my boss did say in this job is like okay your first task anywhere you go is to like just shut up and listen Mm -hmm. and just listen like just listen see how they interact with each other. And that's when you start to get to know them, right? You don't just barge in. Like, you know, you just don't do the thing that they used to do in the past. It's like, here, here's the science and we're going to do this and move away. And then we will leave after we do our project. So now it's becoming better on uh, community-driven projects Mm
3: -hmm. for conservation.
2: Um, And then, what was that? That was, yeah. And then part of that, it was also community. So and then. Part of that job was also talking to policymakers. So, a lot of, um, I got to go to the one of the UN meetings on climate change, the UNFCCC meetings. Cool. I know. <laughs> I, mean, I had always seen them on like TV or like in protests or like, you know, the cops. And um, when I got asked, like, oh, Jorge, like, we uh, need you to go there. We're going to go as a team because we need to showcase uh, carbon and coastal ecosystems as important ecosystems to include in the. They were already in the Paris Agreement, uh, but they needed to be solidified the descriptions and definitions so that they could put it in the, they're called NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is like how countries can account for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. So coastal ecosystems rich in carbon could be added into this agenda So, mm-hmm. keeping carbon stored. So uh, we needed to present this at the COP, where all the leaders of the countries were going to be. And I got to present in like one of the forums. Uh, I think I remember I texted my mom and I was like, I just presented at the UN. That's crazy. And I sent her so many selfies. <laughs> you know, it's very you can tell who's new at the cop because yeah. we're all taking selfies with like the UN logo behind us or, or something. Um and so I was doing a lot of uh it was you can call it education, right? When we're also talking to policymakers, mm-hmm. we're also talking to community. Um education and engagement or outreach. And uh, I remember uh, we also presented our work, just like any uh, academic in a university, because we're also academics, but not in a university. Mm-hmm. But we're also because we're still engaging with other scientists. We're still presenting at national conferences. So we were presenting our work at uh, the American Geophysical Union, AGU. uh because part of my job was to actually keep the latest science on coastal carbon up to date and keeping a data, uh, repository with the Smithsonian. So we always presented at AGU and, uh, we are also building this community of scientists and the, I remember it was December, oh yeah, AGU was in December. And I think, but next year, like the following month, um, this job, the one that I have now, uh. Someone emailed me about it, I was like, oh, like, because I have been to Jasper as an undergrad a long time ago, and my former, the former uh, education person here, Cindy Wilbur, she was one of my mentors in one of the meetings of ESA, and we had stayed in touch because we, all the mentors of the seats program, we see each other annually at the meeting, as okay. a reunion, um, and I was like, oh, I'd like, this job opened up, and uh, they had said, was like, oh, you should, like, think about applying. But I was like, I already have this job in DC and it was like it was an amazing job. It was just a lot of traveling, living yeah. in hotels, uh for like yeah, a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh it was nonstop also because you're working all the hours of the world because you have a meeting with right. Fiji. So my Sundays were always meetings with Fiji. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and then like and then you fly out maybe on Sunday to get to any country by Monday. So it was it was a fun job. And then the I looked at the job description for this and I was like, oh, it's community, it's education, it's science, it's outreach. It's in one place, which attracted mm-hmm. me a lot. And um, and it's in a university uh, that's really important in the field of ecology also. So I was like, oh, but then like, I have this guilt of like, why would I ever leave a job? Like, someone already gave me this opportunity for a job It's like I'm like living well, probably in the world. Uh, it's like, why do I even, like, I'm not that person with like ambition to keep going up. Like, mm-hmm. I should just be grateful that I have one job. And I had another mentor, mm-hmm. Miguel Morales in CI. Uh, and I just asked for his advice. And he actually told me, that, okay, sometimes in the Latino community where we always, we might think that we don't deserve more. We just, we should just like, like sit quietly and be grateful and just do your job. Like mm-hmm. Like, no one told us that as young people to like, or we don't have that idea of like climbing the ladder to like more and more and more and more. And, um, but he's like, but of course, it's also your life. Like you don't have to live how your parents live. You don't have to live by this old traditional values. Like if your life, you want to take this turn, just go for it. You know, you do not ever going to get it. You're like nobody you choosing to like doubt yourself, uh, even before you apply. Um, so I applied and yeah, I got the job. Uh, and now it's like the best job ever. <laughs> uh, just be, it's, it's so awesome that you're in a place, to be in a place where you actually see like seasons change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the first time I get to like, in mean, my office, I get to see nature every day uh, for, you know, a whole year. And I get to see how that system changes. And I get to see who visits when. I get to interact with the people as they come. I get to see how the people interact with the place also as the seasons change. Um, you can teach many different things as the seasons change. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, it's the I don't know. I think it is the best place to be in because you have the science, you have the education, and you can now I can now build this sense of community uh, that I was always looking for, right? But now I want to build it for
3: others here.
1: So I know obviously of like the way that grad students interact with Jasper, but mm-hmm. can you talk more about other members of the community and what you do with like? K 12 schools or
2: older yeah. adults, things like that. Yeah. Right so, okay. Yeah. So here at Desperate Ridge, we have our education and outreach program. We cover yeah everything from K through 12 to Stanford uh, programs. That includes classes. It includes uh, like grad students, research. It also includes like Stanford students who want to do outreach. Um, and then We also engage with community colleges, with other universities that don't have a preserve, uh, and uh, with nonprofit organizations also that are doing environmental education. And also through um, our docent program, we have educational opportunities for them as lifelong learners. So they can take a course, my course, uh, which is the Ecology and Natural History of Jasper Ridge, and when they finish that course, they become docents, uh, and then they can lead educational tours for their community, uh, and they can also participate in research uh, here at Jasper Ridge. So, like, some of the longest research programs here at Jasper Ridge are actually led and monitored by docents. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, I think yeah. at some point we had, like, last year, two years, well, in that pre-pandemic year, yeah. I think Jasper Ridge hosted about 8,000, like, educational visits, so, wow. um, yeah, a lot of people were coming in, those count repeats also, we count each person that came to Jasper Ridge, um, so, yeah, a lot of people visit Jasper Ridge for both yeah. research
3: and education.
1: Yeah, wow. What's your favorite part of this job?
3: Oh, seeing how people can learn outside, it's, like, the best part, I think it's just,
2: just breaking those barriers of, what a, like, the classroom. mm mm-hmm has. I mean, the classroom. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's why I always gravitated towards being outside because I think I always felt more comfortable outside. And and it's not like Juarez has pretty green areas. <laughs> <It> doesn't. <laughs> but even just like in front of my house, there were streets. So I would always just be bringing in the lizards uh, <laughs> into the house. But I think it's, there's something about like going outside and teaching something new. And at that same moment, having that ability for the student to touch that leaf that you mm-hmm. just talked about, like smell it, to, you know, to see where it came from, uh, to see what's growing around it. Uh, and then, and it's easier to promote, like, that peer-to-peer learning also, because then you can ask them immediately, It's like, okay, now you get to present that leaf lesson to someone that's, like, right next to you. Because that's a huge pedagogy, like, lesson, right? Mm-hmm. A big, like, like, are they able to understand it to then teach it? So I think the classroom, an outdoor classroom allows for that a lot more. And then, and I think it's easier then to transfer it uh, to your daily life. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you're only in the classroom at school, right? So if you're always just learning in the classroom. When you're going to go back to your life outside of the classroom, how are you going to be, again, comfortable or in that same position of a classroom to teach someone else? I feel like if you learn outdoors something, you have more opportunities to be outdoors in your daily mm-hmm. life. So then you're in that. If you keep that mind frame that the outdoors can be a learning space, then you can like keep learning just at any time outdoors. So because I mean, how often do you hang out on a classroom on Sunday and Saturday, <laughs> right? Never,
3: no. never, right? So, <laughs> yeah.
2: But how many times are you outdoors on a Sunday or a Saturday? More times, yeah, right? So often. so yeah. you could if you learn something on Monday to Friday outdoors i mean, you know, in my dream life, is that then everyone can keep learning and teaching outdoors on, on weekends.
3: Wow.
2: And there's less pressure of like the whole, like the professor in the front, mm-hmm. the students sitting down, like who yeah. sits in the front, who sits in the yeah. back. <laughs> you know, there's all these like who gets to ask a question or not. Like when you're outdoors, it's like the moment you like walk, everyone distributes themselves differently, mm-hmm. right? Like, so some people will be in the front, some will be in the back. And, um, and yeah anyone can touch the bark of a tree no not poison oak yeah yeah. don't tell the (laughs) students to touch poison oak (laughs) that will be a lesson that they will never forget so yeah
1: yeah so when you look back on your career to this point what are you most proud of
2: oh my god oof (laughs) (laughs) feels like I'm retiring (laughs)
1: it's like
2: what did someone someone send you (laughs) are firing me (laughs) It's just a nice way of like <laughs> uh I you know when you said that the first thing that came into my mind was my family. When I got this job, the job in for example, the job in Washington DC, it felt like a really accompli- a big accomplishment to get a job, to move to DC, to wear a suit and a tie, to mm-hmm. be at the UN meetings, right? Like my mom was like, Oh finally my kid is wearing a suit and a tie. <laughs> Because, you know, for grad school, I was like hugging soil for eight (laughs) years. And so I never got the opportunity to show my parents what I did when I was in D.C. Because I was always flying around. D.C. was also not the best place for them to visit for many ways. So when I first got this job, the second week, I think the third week, uh, I flew my parents here. And... I showed them, uh, you know, like what Stanford and Jasper Ridge was. I remember when I called them, like, oh, I'm switching jobs. Actually, My parents were like, it's like, why are you switching jobs? (laughs) It's like, you just like, what? And then I was like, oh, no, but it's like Stanford. And my mom was like, she had heard of it, I think. And she was like, oh, yeah, like that's like closer to us, right? Like, I was like, oh, yeah, it's in California. I was like, oh. And so she was very like surprised, but also excited. Um. and she had only heard of the campus or like the name, um, uh, but she had never been here. And my dad had not obviously had not been here either. So it was, it was a, when I flew them here, they got to see the university, they got to see the campus, they got to see the preserve. And then they got to meet like uh, Cindy, who had the job before me. they got to meet Rodolfo. They got to meet my bosses, Tony and Liz. And then they got to meet all the docents, so, because it was when they were all here. So, I think I saw that my parents were, like, my parents finally understood what I was aiming for, right, to be at a university teaching.
3: mm mm-hmm.
2: And they were able to speak Spanish with some of the docents. So it was, like, it was a very good, like, moment for me, I think, that was, like, like, oh, yeah, it's, like, I am where I'm supposed to be, and my parents see that I'm happy, and I'm happy for them, and... uh. Yeah, so it was like I got to the point where I think, yeah, I think the proudest moment is this job right now. It's just because uh, I think I made it. Right, <laughs> yeah. I'm At thirty, I think I'm thirty six. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think I made it.
3: So yeah, I think
2: that's one of the best times uh, now because it was. Uh, I think it was the first time I made a really good decision without the pressures
3: of the system. Mm-hmm. It was something that I I made a decision that I owned and that I wanted. Um, uh, And I think it shows how happy I am. I don't
1: know. I mean, you saw me with this student. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it definitely comes across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, I'm in my fourth year. And so, like, trying okay. to figure out what to do and whatever. So, <laughs> what advice would you give me or anybody else <laughs> exactly. in terms of like making a decision for what comes next when mm-hmm. you're also thinking? Because, I mean, similar to what you were saying, all, pretty much all my mentors here are academics. Right. Yeah. So that's like the path that's laid out before us. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's what I want. Yeah. And so what advice would you give <laughs> to me about <laughs> how to make a decision about what to do?
3: Yeah,
2: I mean, I think I always tell when people ask me about advice,
3: I always look back and I don't know if you noticed this, but and I noticed it when I was talking to you. I I remember
2: really well the people that I got advice from, and I say their names because they're very important to me. And I think that's, it's a sign of like being, being surrounded by community that you care for and that they care for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So build, build a good community right now, if you don't have one already, but build a very good community around you that not only represents your job, but also represents who you are as a person, you know? that represents the values you follow you know, that you choose to follow. And and always just keep in touch with them, always keep talking to them, always like keep reflecting with them. And always ask is like, oh, like I talk to all my I think I have like four WhatsApp groups <laughs> of like um people in my PhD, uh people in my masters, people from Sakna's, and like people from Seeds. And we still, even if we check in once every six months, which I'm checking like every week, uh, but those people will always sort of ask you questions that might be that you might be avoiding because of fear, mm-hmm. because they know you. They're your friends, right? Like, or you might be able to trust them more with more hard questions that you cannot ask your advisor, right? Or that you cannot ask your committee. So always find people around you that you can be more you, but you can ask those questions about what you want. Mm-hmm. Or not even ask questions or like saying it out loud. Sometimes you know what you want, but you're afraid to say it because you feel you're going to get judged or you feel you're going to be, you know, put in a box if you say something. So, and the more you talk about what you want, the easier it gets to pursue it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because then you're able to talk about it and people will be like, oh, I didn't know you were interested in that. It's like, why don't you apply for this job? So it's build that community or those multiple support networks around you. Uh, And those will be able to help you Mm -hmm. vocalize it, idealize it, and then guide you through it. Um, And um, other than that, just writing. Write a lot. (laughs) Just write, 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 write a lot. I think that's one of the things I'm still, I'm still learning how to write a lot. But yeah, and have, write a lot about what you do so that you can have evidence of what you did.
1: All right, well, if people listening want to like get in touch with you, how can they do that?
2: They can email me uh, at corset.ramosatsternford.edu. You can follow me on Twitter. It's R H 20 And yeah, that's about it. Cool. Yeah, or come visit. Yeah. <laughs> come visit Jasper Ridge. We're only like five miles south of campus. Stephanie knows where it is, so <laughs> she can guide you here. Cool. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you very no, much. Thank Thank you.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Roots to STEM podcast. If you're liking the podcast, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. Stay in touch with us on Twitter at Roots to STEM pod and on Instagram at Roots to STEM podcast. And you can always email us at Roots to STEM podcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in the new year with a new episode. Happy holidays, everyone.